0: Uh, We're going to pick up our study of the book of Titus as we've been making our way verse by verse through this book. Um, So go ahead and start to find that space in your Bible, that place in your Bible, Uh, Titus chapter 2, and I'm going to pray for us. Father, we are uh, humbled, really, Lord, that you have uh, called us to yourself. You've opened up our hearts to believe. Lord, you've been so gracious to entrust the word of God. Uh, to this time in this place, this culture in which we live, and you minister through your word faithfully, Lord, to us. And we're so grateful. And we pray once again you would do that. Lord, you'd give us uh, ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us this morning. And as always, Lord, we know that there are distractions and there are things that are um, vying for our attention even this morning. And so, Lord, we do pray, Lord, uh, as we seek to take every thought captive, enter into your presence, Lord, that you would minister to our hearts, and we'd be prepared to receive from you. So bless our study, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we are in the book of Titus. We're picking up with this uh, pastoral epistle in which Paul is uh, explaining to this young fella here, 30s or so, what his ministry is going to look like on the island of Crete, what he should be focusing his time and his attention on. And we've made our way all the way to chapter 2, verse 11. And so he has addressed uh, how Titus is to uh, minister to this group of people and that group of people. He's addressed uh, the false teachers that are there. He's addressed what Titus should really focus his attention on um, there on the island as he's ministering to all those churches. And we come now to verse 11, which is so rich with material, if you will. Uh, Every phrase is something that pretty much needs comment on, and so we'll, we'll try to do that. And so I'm going to read verses 11 down to the end of the chapter, verse 15. It says, Now for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works? Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you. And so, again, so much here that we can begin to dig into. Just quickly, notice he brings up such topics as God's grace. Books are written on that particular topic. He brings up salvation. He brings up this idea of salvation for all people that he talks about. Certainly that needs some commentary. He talks about the purpose of grace, at least this, this side of heaven, the purpose of grace being re- that we might be able to renounce ungodliness and other worldly desires, and instead that we can live self-controlled lives waiting for the blessed hope of our Savior. That's the purpose of grace, among other things. Now, as we, I'm going to start digging into each one of those topics a little bit, and hopefully there'll be a flow and it won't be sort of broken up, but nonetheless, we'll do our best here. I I remind you of the immediate context of these particular words, which is always so very important and becomes very, very important when there's a break in our study, And so you're reading a chapter in the morning, and then tomorrow you come in and you read the next chapter. It's always so good just to remind yourself, oh yeah, what did I read yesterday? And in our purpose here, we studied this material a week ago. Many of us may forget what we looked at a week ago. I oftentimes forget what we studied a week ago. And so we have this situation here. What's the immediate context of this statement that Paul is making here? So look back in chapter 2, verse 10. And as you do, you'll note, you'll remind yourself that's where Paul spoke of this idea of adorning the gospel, making the gospel attractive, living your life in such a way that people look at your life, say, that guy, that gal's a believer in Christ. You know what? Perhaps I would like to become a believer in Christ because you have adorned the gospel. You have made it so beautiful, so attractive, that people want to live that life for themselves as well. And in verse 10, Paul was speaking of this idea of adorning the gospel so that others would come to God. Look what he says. I'll start in verse 9. He says, bond servants are to be submissive to their masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now specifically, remember here, he is talking about the slaves living their lives in such a way, becoming the kind of employees that they need to be so that their masters will look at their lives and say, huh, that's interesting, the power to live a life that is honoring to God and others, maybe I might like to become a Christian here. And I didn't mention this last week, but what really struck me again this week as I looked at those couple of verses once more A lot of times we look at a verse like this, and we think that even the lowest of the low of society, God has the gospel for them. But what this passage is saying is the opposite, maybe what we wouldn't expect. That even the highest of high of society that have everything going for them, God has the gospel for them. The people that have the advantage here are the slaves, the ones that know Jesus. They're the ones that have the advantage and says, Paul Paul says this, you can't keep the gospel from your slave owner, from your master. They need to hear it as well. They got everything going for them. I'm not sharing the gospel with them. No, they need to hear it because it's a message of salvation for all people. The lowest of the low, the highest of the high, the people, it looks like they got everything they need in life. They need to hear the gospel as well. The down and out as well as the up and in, if you will. And from the perspective of the gospel, they're the ones with the advantage. Paul says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God is even for them. Now, there's a few different words that appear again and again in the scripture. And sometimes we we use them interchangeably, but they're actually different words, and they mean something different. The three words are the words justice, the word mercy, and the word grace. And so in the New Testament, in particular, the word, or in the scripture, I'd say, the word justice, it's used 131 times. Now, obviously, it depends on the version that you're reading, but that word and and kind of the root meaning of that word, 131 times. Mercy, 153 times, and grace, 122 times. Justice is getting what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And grace is getting what we don't deserve. And there's a distinction, obviously, between the three. I imagine if we put it up on the screen, you could see it a little more clearly. But justice is getting what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And grace is getting what we don't deserve. Grace, which Paul begins this little section talking about, is God's unmerited favor, or really, it's unmerited favor toward another person. You can show somebody grace. They don't deserve it, but you show them what it is, the kindness that you want to show them. And God obviously shows his grace, its unmerited favor toward another. And as it pertains to the scripture, it's that God has been kind to us despite the fact that we deserve anything but kindness from him. We know from the scripture, the scripture is very clear on this. This isn't one of those where people are like, I don't know, I see it differently. This is a very clear point of scripture. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us. And of course, some of us in this room are like, man, he really sinned. And this guy here, a little less sinned. But all of us have sinned and we've fallen short of God's perfect standard. Romans chapter 323, it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And whereas all of our sin may look a little different and it may have different magnitudes, some of us may have done more things than other people, our sin even when it's a sin against another person, I've sinned against my wife, I've sinned against this guy over here, I've sinned against that person over there, even when it's a sin against another person, it's ultimately a sin against an all-wise, all-seeing, all-perfect God. And so all sin is against God. He knows it. He sees it. We know that he has the power to act against it if he so chose. We call that judgment in the scripture. And yet he hasn't, at least not against us that have sinned against him. He hasn't poured forth his judgment as of this point. What we deserve, remember that's the definition of justice, what we deserve is punishment commensurate with our sin. We've sinned against him, we deserve judgment from him. As the scripture tells us, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God we know is eternal life in Christ Jesus. We deserve death, sinners, myself included. We deserve death. We deserve judgment. We deserve separation from God. But what we have received instead from him is grace. Again, remember that definition, the undeserved favor of God. And so again, you go on in that Romans passage, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is, is eternal life. That's God's grace. We don't deserve it. It's his unmerited favor. And instead of judgment, God's grace has come. And it has come bringing salvation for all people. Think about that. It has come. It has brought with it salvation for all people. You don't have to seek it out. You don't have to search it out. You don't have to do this in order to earn it. It has come, and it's brought salvation with it. Paul says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, we want to be careful with this. Because there have been some that have taken verse 11, and they have misunderstood the message of that phrase where it says, for all people. And they have drawn this conclusion that this teaches a universal salvation. That this teaches that Jesus Christ died on the cross. And I'm glad they're interested in that and they acknowledge that. And because Jesus died on the cross, all have been saved. All have been forgiven. All have been cleansed from their sin and all will go to heaven. That would be an idea of universal salvation. The Bible doesn't teach that. And this verse wouldn't be the place that you go to. Look, it says, bring salvation for all people. Therefore, all must be saved. This phrase, for all people... It does not teach this idea of universal salvation, but what it teaches is, and we take the whole context of Scripture. Yes, I agree, it says for all people. But what does all of Scripture teach about this topic? And what it teaches is there's not this idea of universal salvation, but there's this idea of the universal opportunity for salvation. Because of the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross, anyone can get saved. Anyone could have their sins forgiven. Even that slave owner can have his sins forgiven, just like that slave can have his sins forgiven, and just like you and I can as well. The work that Christ did on the cross, we might say it this way, it did not save all people, but it provided the means of salvation for all people. And that's a very important distinction. And that's why we go forth and we share the gospel with others. That's why we send missionaries out to preach the gospel to others. I found this helpful explanation. It said, it might be said that Christ's atonement, that's the atonement is this idea of the covering of his blood from the cross. It goes back to the idea of the sacrificial system. It might be said that the Christ's atonement is sufficient for the whole world, but that it's efficient only for those that believe. There are two verses that come to mind. Ephesians chapter 2, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. That important aspect of faith, bringing salvation into a person's life. It's not this work of Christ alone that cleanses all humanity, but those that place their faith in that work. The second verse passage, really, that comes to mind is from Acts chapter 15. And I suspect some of you will remember when I begin to give you some of the details. Acts chapter 15, you have the Apostle Paul And his kind of his partner, a fellow by the name of Silas and Paul and Silas, they're in the the city, the region there of Philippi. They get arrested. They're in jail. And it was because of their testimony for Christ while they were there in jail that the jailer himself says, what do I need to do to be saved like you guys are? That's adorning the gospel. Here these guys are in a crummy situation. They're put in jail because they're believers in Christ. And what are they doing while they're there? They're praising Christ. And this jailer sees that and is like, man, i got to have what you have. And so he says to them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now notice how Paul and Silas respond. It says in Acts 16, I think I said 15 earlier, but I don't have my glasses on. It's Acts 16. It says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now consider how different this response would have been. Oh, you don't have to worry yourself because the work of Jesus has saved everyone already. That's an extremely different message, isn't it? This passage here in Titus, it doesn't teach a universal salvation, but it teaches this idea of a universal need and that there's a universal remedy for that need and that's believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's placing your trust, and and I know a lot of us here know this, but I think it's important, especially as we go to the communion table, to remind ourselves of this. It's placing our trust in this fact that despite our sin, Christ died to pay the penalty for that sin and set us free from his consequences. The good news message of the cross is that there is a, a bona fide it's real you can take it to the bank a bona fide offer of pardonness and forgiveness that is made to everyone but it becomes efficient for only those that believe and so what do you do believe believe on the lord jesus christ now, continuing we move on, he's talking about this idea of salvation. And so we we ask ourselves, what is salvation? We've said it a few times this morning, and I try and be careful with it, because some people are like, I don't know what you're talking about. But we say, Are you saved? Well, some people don't even know what that means. Maybe today, this morning, you're not even familiar with that, what that means. We talk about salvation. Salvation from what? Now typically. When we talk about salvation, our mind immediately goes to salvation from the consequences of sin. And so we talk about being saved from hell. We talked about being saved from judgment. Our mind begins to think of, you know, I've been saved, so one day I'm going to go to heaven. We think about all this that's coming in the next life. But what I find fascinating here, that's not what Paul does. Paul doesn't go in and start talking about the next life. He starts talking about this life and what salvation looks like in this life. So look again at the passage, starting again at 11. He says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now we might expect it to go on to say, and one day heaven's going to be awesome. And the angels and the songs and, you know, like, kind of like Book of Revelation uh, toward the end of it there. But rather, he says this, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, waiting for the blessing hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior. He brings up the topic of salvation and then he proceeds to talk about renouncing ungodliness And worldly passions. He proceeds to talk about living self controlled, upright, and godly lives, notice, in this present age. In verse 13, he talks about waiting here for the glorious appearing of our blessed hope from heaven. And so, as important as salvation from the penalty of sin is, that's this heaven and hell uh, paradigm. As important as salvation from the penalty of sin, Paul's emphasis in this passage is on salvation from the power of sin. And, and I'll tell you, I can, yes, I can't wait to go to heaven and all that. And when I first became a Christian, that was like my primary motivating factor. I want to get to heaven someday. But I have to tell you, the longer that I worked with Christ, what gets me more and more excited about my faith in Christ is the power of salvation. That I can live in this world in a way that is honoring and pleasing to him. And as I was created to live, and as you were created to live. We, you know, we talk about in sports sometimes that a person hits a certain age where they're still young, but now they have the experience, and man, they have hit that sweet spot of life. And they're just the very best athlete they're ever gonna be. Baseball, it's like 27 years of age or something like that. Well, when we are walking as God would have us to walk with him, we have hit that sweet spot. This is what we were created to do. To walk in fellowship and in harmony with Him, and that comes by and from the grace of God. Paul says it's the reason the grace of God has appeared. I'm going to read verses eleven and twelve. I've read it like six times already, but I'm going to read it again this time, and I'm going to leave out a phrase, a paragraph, a um, a phrase, a parenthetical thought. He says in verse eleven. For the grace of God has appeared, I'm going to skip up to verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And it goes on from there. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it offers us not only an escape from the penalty of sin, but a transformation in our lives here and now. The power to walk with him in a way that is honoring and pleasing to him. And I just love that reality. I appreciate it so very much. What God's grace does, according to the Apostle Paul, is it takes the believer into its school. There's a school. It's called the School of Grace. And every one of us that names the name of Christ, everyone that is a believer in Jesus Christ, he enrolls us in that program. And you are in a school, and you are in, as he says in the passage, verse 12, you are in this process, you've begun this process of training in godliness. You're in school there. He uses the word training. In the Greek, it's the same word where we get our English word pedagogy. If you're not familiar with that particular word, pedagogy is the method and practice of teaching. When I was a school teacher, we would have these in-services and some guy or gal would come in and they would explain to us a new method or practice of teaching that's effective and we should start using that. Well, we were learning pedagogy. When a person is saved, God's grace will begin working in that person's life, teaching them for the remainder of their time here on the earth what it is, what they need to know, what they need to learn as they grow in godliness. This is a very rich word, training. It's used in a lot of instances. It was a very popular word in the ancient Greek language, Koine Greek language, that even outside of the bible it was a word it was just a very common word that they use this word training here and in other places it's words like discipling educating nurturing it was a word that was often used to uh, describe the way that a parent works with their child and so you know a school teacher uh, myself something like this we might lecture a lot here well that's only one way to teach you know how a parent teaches their kids in a million of million different ways. And so the way that a parent will pull the kid aside and encourage them. I was thinking we got all these little kids running around here now that are a lot of them are learning to walk. And so, you know, the parents they'll stand there and they sort of they catch them so they don't hit their head here, but they're letting the kid kind of do what they do and they're encouraging them, and yay! And we're clapping for them and all that kind of stuff. Sometimes as parents, we encourage. Sometimes as parents, no, no. Gentle correction. Sometimes it's parents, absolutely not. Get away from the road or whatever. And, you know, it's stronger discipline. And this is what Paul is talking about. The way that a parent in a million different ways will parent their kid, it's the way that grace will parent us. It's the way that grace is going to change us and train us that in this uh, journey toward godliness. And through every circumstance of life, God through his grace, is at work molding us and shaping our hearts and our minds so that we will be further like his heart and his mind. And that's fantastic. That's exactly what we want. When we come to faith, we want to be more like God. And the fact that he is willing to kind of tutor us, come alongside of us for 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, however it is we might walk with him, that's remarkable. You're going to spend that kind of time with me? And he's like, yep, and that guy there, and that guy there, and all of you. I can do it all at once. I'm amazing. I'm God, or whatever, and he is. Now, you'll notice what Paul does. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. So It doesn't say he has brought salvation, this sanctifying process in our lives. He's bringing it it's written in the present tense, and I think it is by design, because this school, it isn't a one-and-done kind of thing. You come to Jesus, and you're, you're saved, and you've been forgiven of your sins, and washed and cleansed, and you're changed in an instant. and Everything about you is different. That's not the reality, as many of us know. All, I'm sure all of us have come to discover. The other part of it is, this isn't a, a school you go away to for a weekend, or a semester, or for four years. And God trains you up and now you're ready to go and you're going to be godly for the rest of your lives. This is a present tense process that continues on and on and on and on and on until you come to the end of your days. He is in the process of perfecting us. He's in the process of sanctifying us so that we will be more like his son at the end of our days than we are at the beginning of our days. You don't graduate from the school of grace You just keep moving on and on and on as God keeps on changing you. And so Paul here, he says, the grace of God, it trains us. Excuse me. He says, the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled. Some versions say soberly, which we've been talking about. It's been appearing a lot in the book of Titus. Upright and godly lives in this present age. What God does as we journey with him is he begins to pull certain things out of our lives, and he begins to put other things into our lives. And so he, be- he pulls out, as we see here, ungodliness and worldly passions, and then he begins to replace them with character traits like self-control, with righteousness, or uh, he talks about being upright, and with godliness godly lives in this present age how how does he do that well he does it through the the convict the training process by the conviction of his holy spirit which he has given to everyone that's a believer as a down payment of heaven it says the holy spirit lives in you if you're a follower of jesus christ a believer of jesus christ and so it's through the conviction of the holy spirit and through the revelation of his word and so you read his word and you're like oh my gosh i didn't even know that that's what God wanted me to do. I didn't even know that that was a problem that he didn't want me to do. And then the Holy Spirit, well, now you do. And so we're going to start working on that particular area there uh, in our lives. And he begins to change our actions. He begins to change our attitudes, which is beautiful. Because it's not just about what I do, it's about the attitude of my heart in what I do and don't do. And he begins to reform that, and he begins to change that. It's a great school. It's a wonderful school. At our funerals, we should have like graduation gowns or something that we give out here. Now, I would love, you know, I would really love if poof, you become a believer and you're totally different. How great that would be. And I wish that was the case, but the reality is that's not the way it works. And so the magic, that would be magic, the magic of things is, is that at the moment of salvation, God brings light into our lives And what previously was lying in darkness, he begins to expose. And he begins to reveal. And graciously, he doesn't do it all at once, but just little by little. And, you know, over the years, as I looked at my walk with the Lord, I could see what it was he was focusing on. And so as soon as I became a believer, this is what he was focusing on. Yeah, we're going to deal with this. And I was like, yeah, hey, I got victory. Excellent. Tomorrow morning, we're going to start this. And he begins to work in that area, and then this area, and this area. And in the beginning, it was a lot of outside stuff. My tongue, my actions, what I did, and all that kind of stuff. Further along I came with the Lord, it was a lot of the inside stuff. And it begins to change us on the inside. That's God's grace at work in us. Renouncing ungodliness, renouncing worldly passions, and conversely embracing the godly things Self-control, upright living, etc. The grace of God. Now, interesting, there are some Bible teachers that think you've got to be real careful with grace. If you emphasize grace too much, people are going to go crazy. They're going to go wild in their lives here because it's all about God's grace. And so we can't emphasize grace too much. I just don't agree with that. There's a wonderful book that, that uh, is, we have a little bookshelf thing here. Um, it's called Why Grace Changes Everything. It's a story of uh, Chuck Smith. Chuck Smith uh, pastored at Calvary Chapel back in the 60s and, and all the way up to like the 90s or something. Uh, and he came from a very legalistic background. Actually, he believed you could lose your salvation and so every week he would get saved again as he would go forward at church and get saved again because he knew he blew it during the week. And then he, he was probably like 50 years old. Been a Christian for 50 years or so and walking maybe with the Lord for 40 of those years. And he finally came to this point Of understanding the grace of God means I don't have to do it on my own. I've been trying to be saved with my own efforts and my own works, but God's grace changes everything. That's what the book title, I don't know if I gave it to you, is Why Grace Changes Everything. And I remember reading it and just sort of feeling like, and I don't think I was where Chuck was in his thinking, but I just feeling like these weights and these chains were lifted from me. And there was a freedom to walk with Jesus in in joy and in freedom and just i'm saved i have a relationship with god through, because of the work of his son and there's a great joy that comes with it and so there are some that say you better be careful don't preach grace too much i don't think we need to be afraid of grace at all because the reality is i think a person that has truly come to understand and receive god's grace is going to be trained up in that grace and they're not going to go wild because they're free to go wild god it's all about god's grace because they're not going to want to go wild. They're going to want to walk with Jesus. And if Jesus is over here, well, then that's where I'm going as well. A true grasp of biblical grace, I don't want to be near that any longer. Somebody has said denying ungodliness is the acid test of genuine conversion. Because of a Christian's new nature, because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, That new believer cannot comfortably continue to live in unconfessed sin. It's gonna have to be pressing against them, because that's what God's word does in, or that's what God's grace does in our lives. John MacArthur he said, a person who is not being purified from sin has no claim of being saved from sin. And I don't agree with everything MacArthur says, but I do agree with that statement. I think that's an important statement. Okay. A person who is not being purified from sin has no claim of being saved from sin. And the point of the state, it's a strong statement, I understand. But the point of the statement is this, you will be, if you're saved, you will be uncomfortable with sin. There is a process of God's grace working in your lives where his Holy Spirit is saying, yeah, let's not go there. Let's not do that particular thing. There's two other passages that come to mind on this topic. Paul wrote both of them. The first is the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6. He says this. It's kind of long. I think we're going to, yep, it's up there. He says, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members of God, your body, to, as instruments for righteousness. For sin will no longer have dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. The impact that grace has in our lives. The second is from Paul's writing to the believers in Ephesus, the book of Ephesians. He says, but that's not the way you have learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him, and the truth is in Jesus. To put your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. Put off the old self, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That passage there in particular, it's been likened to to changing garments. If you've got an old, dirty, stained set of clothes that are on you, taking those off and putting on a whole new set of clean clothes. Paul talks about put off and put on. Put off ungodliness, he says in Titus. Put off worldly passions. Renounce those things. Now, ungodliness, it's a want of reverence toward God. It's a want of reverence toward God or the absence of God in a person's life so it's not necessarily going out and living this crazy wild life ungodliness is simply the want of reverence toward god or the absence of god or reverence for god in a person's life it speaks of a person who has no real place for god in their life and that could simply mean they don't give him any thought they don't pay him any mind and they just live the life that they want to live going in the direction that they want to go and they could be a nice, wonderful, upstanding individual of society and still end up going to hell because they don't have a relationship with God. And they've lived their life in such a way where they gave God no thought. They never allowed his Holy Spirit to convict them. They never allowed the Holy Spirit to bring them to the end of themselves and say, I can't, and I need God too. And because they have never done so, they never establish a saving relationship with him. Paul talks about there renouncing ungodliness, living life in such a way as if God doesn't matter in your life. The next one he talks about is worldly passions. Some versions use the word worldly lust. Now, when we think of lust, we oftentimes think of sexual sin. But here, worldly passions, it refers not just to sexual sins, but also lust for power, lust for wealth, lust for fame, lust for anything else that is only of this world. That's worldly passions. Paul says what grace teaches us to do is to stop living for this world and start living for the next world. He talks about renouncing ungodly passions. And so those are what we would call the negative features of grace work. That's the things God's going to take out of our lives. But at the same time, God puts things into our lives. Those would be the positive features to go back to that Ephesians passage when he talked about put off, take off the dirty garment, put on. Well, this is what he tells us to put on in Titus, and he says to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. The Christian life, it has to be more than just the negative virtues. I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this. Oh, yeah, and I'm miserable because I don't do anything in my life here. There are positive aspects of walking with the Lord, and we have to nurture the positive virtues as well. On that positive side, grace teaches us to live self-controlled lives. As far as our own desires are concerned, we have, we begin to learn the lesson, I don't have to give into every desire that I have. I don't have to say everything I want to say. I don't have to do everything that my, I desire to do. I can say no to myself and still live. Self-controlled. He talks about being there. Well, that's, a, that's an aspect that God trains up in us. And early on, as we're learning self-control, there's a lot of interaction with God. Oh, God, you got to help me here. And it's running away. Get me out of this situation, God. There's a lot of that stuff that is going on as God begins to train in us the character trait of self-control. Next thing he talks about is upright lives. I think some versions use righteously, live righteously here on the earth. That's referring to the interactions we have with others. And grace treats us that we're not what the whole world revolves around, as much as we think we are but that there are other people that live on this planet as well. What grace teaches us is to treat others with things like honesty, to be respectful in our dealings with others, to operate in all ways purely toward others. Grace teaches us that. So self-control is internal. It's dealing with myself. The second one here is dealing with others. And then lastly, Paul speaks about living godly lives. That means a life that acknowledges God. Remember, ungodliness Was living in such a way as kind of if God doesn't even exist? Well, godliness is living in such a way as if he does exist. Developing, again, that constant communion with him. Building our entire lives around him and his word. And how his word directs us and how his word guides us. And of course, so often that's going to speak of really just our character. His word doesn't necessarily say, take this job and take that job and all this kind of stuff. But his word teaches us how to act in that job, or in that particular job, right? And so he trains us up for those things. Jesus taught us something. He taught us, (laughs) you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And so how can you know if a person has been saved? And how can you know if they've had salvation? Well, in honesty, you can't necessarily know for certain about that guy over there. But I do believe that guy. Yes. I can't necessarily know for certain. I'm still trying to figure out for certain for myself. No, I'm kidding. But you can look at a person's fruit in their lives. And that fruit should give evidence of God's work in their lives. Jesus again said, you will recognize them by their fruit. And so in our lives, we look and we see examples of us renouncing ungodliness, renouncing worldly passions. We see ourselves embracing things like self-control and uprightness and godliness. And those are indicators that the school of grace is doing what the school of grace does. It's changing us. Well, Paul's going to go on. we got—we got we to go on. If we're going to have communion today um, here, we're running out of time. Jim's like, I know. Jim, Jim's going to lead us today in communion. But Paul continues in verse 13. He says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Waiting for our blessed hope, which is interesting. Our blessed hope is a person, is Jesus. So it's not even really, one day I'll go to heaven. No, our blessed hope is one day I'll be with Jesus in heaven. So we're waiting for him. And Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may also be. And if it were not so, I wouldn't have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again. Jesus was very clear that he was going to come a second time. We call that the second coming of Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, you may recall, it's very early on in the book of Acts, Jesus has risen from the dead He's been interacting again with his disciples, appearing to larger numbers, like 500 of them, but for the most part, interacting with the smaller group of his disciples. And he goes out with them. And Jesus then, as he's with those disciples, he begins to ascend into heaven. This is Acts chapter 1. You can read it. I'm not making it up. He begins to ascend up into heaven. And as you can imagine, the disciples, they stand there and they watch him as he goes. And they're looking up into heaven. And as they're standing there looking up into heaven, he's disappearing behind the clouds, two men, it says, in white garments or whatever, angels, two angels kind of sneak up behind them, and they're like, what are we looking at? <laughs> uh, whatever. They're like, what, what are we looking at? They sort of like that. It says, as, and while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The Bible's clear. Jesus said he would come again. The record, the testimony of others is that he would come again. The New Testament epistles speak about him coming again. Jesus will come again from heaven. And those of us that are living for heaven, that's exciting. Now, we're here on the earth, and we're doing what we have to do here on the earth. And, and I remember, you know, just before I got married, oh, Lord, please come back after January 2nd, you know, or, you know, and kids and all this kind of stuff, and you want to have them and stuff. And I get it, and, and I'm glad I'm here on the earth. I'm not trying to like, escape necessarily. But we do want to have hearts that are looking for heaven. And if that's what our heart is longing for, that will indeed be our blessed hope, his return. Now, I'm, I'm moving a little quickly, and I appreciate your patience, but notice what Paul says in verse 13. He says, the, uh, the, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, catch that phrase, because there, there's hardly any clearer statement in the New Testament about the deity of Jesus Christ than this one. There's a few others, certainly so, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, Romans chapter 9, verse 5, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, but this might be the most clear statement about the deity of Jesus Christ. Paul says, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He does not say, our great God and our Savior, Jesus, so there's God, God the Father, and Jesus, number two there. He says, our great God and Savior. So he's not talking here about two distinct beings, but one being who is both God and Savior, whom he names for us, is Jesus Christ. And both of those phrases there, our God, our Savior, both of those phrases are referring to the same individual. Paul unequivocally believed, as do we, that Jesus is our Savior and our God. And Titus 2.13 is a clear affirmation of that, beliefs, that that belief. Paul calls his return, the return of our great God and Savior, our blessed hope. And according to the Apostle Paul, it is a good thing that you wake up each day and you look to heaven and you wonder, could this be the day? Could he be coming back for me today? Paul or excuse me, John says this. He says, "Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is." And then notice this important verse: "And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure." You remember when you were in high school and your parents went away for the weekend, and I don't know why, they said they were going to leave you home alone for the weekend. And you had all your friends over and you studied math and and things like that. You did whatever you did there. But you knew your parents were coming home. We're going to be home around 3 p.m. on Sunday afternoon. And so you cleaned and cleaned and cleaned at 2 p.m. Because you knew that their appearance was coming within an hour. And what do good parents do? They come back a little early and they catch you. I don't know if that's what yours did. But that's what mine did. This idea of today could be the day. I'm living for heaven. Certainly is gonna keep you from getting involved in this thing and getting involved in that thing. If you know at any moment he can come and interrupt what it is you're getting involved for. But again, I think that's like the negative. I think he's calling us to live for something. And that means the time is short. And I wanna live for that thing in the remaining moments in time that I have here. Paul, John says it has a purifying effect on our lives. He calls that the blessed hope. Going on to 14, he said, who gave himself to us, for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. So he's been talking about the second coming, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. He transitions back to the work of the first coming when he says he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and so on. There's so much there in these verses. Notice, Jesus gave. That means it's voluntary. He made that determination. He decided, I'm going to go and I'm going to give my life. Voluntary. It wasn't compelled. It wasn't taken from him. He says in another place, nobody is taking my my life from me. I'm laying it down freely, he says. Next, he says, he gave himself. That means he gave all that he could give. He gave his very life for us. And then lastly, Paul speaks of him giving himself for us, who gave himself for us to redeem us. And that speaks of this idea of a substitution. We could pay the penalty ourselves and continue paying it for the rest of eternity, or he could pay the penalty for us once and for all at the cross. And he decided he would give himself in our place. He took our place. He took our judgment. John Phillips is a Bible commentator I appreciate. He said, Consider this most astounding fact of history. And it is this, that the second person of the Godhead, the one whom the angels worship, the creator of the universe, consider He came to die and he did so for us. Paul goes on, he says, He gave himself for us to redeem us. The word redeem there, it means to set free by paying a price. Some versions use the word ransom. The idea is, the meaning of the word is to release upon receipt of payment. This is what it's going to cost to set that person free. And so you you pay the ransom for it. One had a debt, and they would remain bound as long as the debt went unpaid. Well, our debt, all of us, I don't even know everyone here, but I know we're all the same, and our debt for every one of us in here is the consequences of our sin. Every one of us in here, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, every one of us in here, we have sin that must be judged, and by his death, Jesus met the just demands of God's holy law the perfect one took upon himself the consequences of the sinful ones each of us I say a lot I hope it's one of those phrases that we just all kind of learn because I say a lot the cross of Christ was no accident the cross of Christ was the very reason why Jesus came to this earth Jesus said this in Mark 10, 10, he said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to redeem us. He came to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Saved us from, saved us to. He redeemed us. Notice, too, that we might become a people for his own possession, some of you that are more King Jamesian, you know that that verse, uh, it reads there, he, he calls us a peculiar people. Anybody have that in your Bible there, peculiar people? I know that guy does, and it fits for you, um, certainly so. Please know this, when it says a peculiar people, it doesn't mean that Jesus saved us so we could become weird. It doesn't mean that. That's not the point that Paul's seeking to make. Now, some of us are weird, but that's not Jesus' fault. All right, you brought that on yourself. When when Paul talks about being a peculiar people, or again, as it's some of the more modern translations, a people for his own possession, it's using a phrase that described what a conquering king would do or maybe a a military general would do. And they would go in, they would take over a city, they would defeat it, and then the conquering king, the military general, whatever it might be, you've heard the expression, to the victor goes the spoils. Well, that's how many of the soldiers were paid take whatever you want but first the conquering king the general he would go in he says oh I love that credenza and he put his little name on it he says I'm taking that for me and he put his name on it and he she would take whatever it is they wanted first and then the pe- the soldiers they could get all the rest that's the word that is used here so when it says a people for his own possession God said he saved us for himself he went around he put his little post-it note on you and your life you are his now what i find remarkable about that is if you had to pay this exorbitant amount of money your kid he's acting like a knucklehead or whatever and he's done all this crazy stuff got himself into trouble and you had to go and put all kinds of money in to get him out of jail whatever it might be and you lay it all down there you might walk away from that circumstance being a little like like you know don't even talk to me just get in the car, I'll get you home, or whatever. And you might be a little embittered toward him, right? Jesus paid this exorbitant amount of money for our lives. And we could expect him to say, you know what, just, just don't talk to me for a bit. But instead, he goes over and he says, no, 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 you get over here. You need to talk to me now because I bought you. You're mine. You're my peculiar possession. Some of you more so than others but I've saved you for myself think about that how remarkable Paul finally says declare these things exhort rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you the exhortation part he says declare these things rebuke with all authority those that won't listen Timothy was a young or excuse me Titus was a young guy just like Timothy was And there might be those in the community that say, well, you're young. You don't know anything. Paul says, you know everything you need to know. Keep declaring the word of God there. uh, Exhort, rebuke with all authority. If somebody says, he's just a kid, he doesn't know. Don't let anyone disregard you. You keep preaching what you need to be preaching. Declare these things, he says to them. And that's not because Titus was somebody special. Well, I'm the minister, so listen to me. It's because the message that Titus had was something special you keep preaching the word of God and let that impact every life of the people that you're coming into contact with let's pray father we thank you we are peculiar people for your own possession lord you love us so incredibly much you want to be in relationship with us even though we know we don't deserve to be in relationship with you even after you've done the saving work in our lives lord so often lord we uh we go our own direction we're like that sheep that has wandered off. But, God, you're so kind. You put the 99 over there in the pen. You go. You hunt us down. You find us. If need be, you break our leg. You lay us over your, the back of your neck. You carry us to where we need to be. Lord, we thank you that you don't just leave us as we were, but you do a changing process in us to make us more like your son. Lord, we love that. We rejoice in that. And as we focus our thought and our mind now on the sacrifice of the cross through communion, Lord, would you draw us into your presence, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.